0: Let us leave here today with a renewed sense, maybe a renewed vision of the importance of your resurrection. Lord Jesus, and give us the grace and the power and the strength to represent you in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well we are talking today about three gardens in human history I will tell you that the scripture identifies far more than three gardens and uh, I certainly could not attempt to deal with all of the gardens in the scripture I would lose a bunch of you and the people at home would be turning their TVs off see I'm old school I said turn the TV off we <laughs> Yeah, we, we had a remote control when, when I was a kid. It was me uh, and my little brother. Uh, but uh, but we're going to deal with three gardens in human history today that will lead us to where we want to get. Um, and so three separate gardens play a role in human history as it pertains to our relationship to our Heavenly Father and eternity. And they play a, a, a significant role in our lives. We will. Last Sunday, we dealt with the message of the cross as the power of God. And we will continue to celebrate the message of the cross. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the deep south. I'm, I'm as far down as you can go into Florida without jumping off into the Gulf of Mexico. And I figured out that without a cross, you can't have a resurrection. And without a resurrection, you can't have a cross. So I'm smart that way. <laughs> we're going to continue observing and embracing the message of the cross. We've, su- we've sung about it today uh, in song. And we're going to rejoice in the events of the third garden, without which there would be no salvation uh, for us or anybody. Now, in a moment, I'm going to read from Romans 5, and I'm going to throw you a real curve today, and that is that I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, and I'm doing that because this is one of those passages that, if you don't watch it, you'll you'll be bouncing back and forth and back and forth, and and I'm I would never attempt to read this in the King James. Uh, I'm, not, I'm sure I would understand it, but uh, but I'm going to read uh, chapter uh, Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. And uh, it just kind of sets us up for where we want to get to today. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would stand with me while we read the scripture. And it begins this way again in the New Living Translation. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol or a type, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater, everybody say greater, Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ, one act of righteousness, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over the people and brought them to death, now, everybody say now, God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus, our Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. Lord, add your anointing and revelation to the reading of the scripture. Obviously, the first garden we will visit is the Garden of Eden. And we won't spend as much time here and we won't spend as much time in the second garden as we will the last, but we need to visit the garden of Eden because that's where the story begins. Scripture says that then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had made. He told him as he, as he planted this garden, he said, every tree that is pleasant to the site and good for food is in this garden. Everything they needed, everything they needed to eat was right there. Naturally, they decided to eat something that he told them not to eat, because, but they had plenty to eat in the garden. The Garden of Eden or the word Eden is a word that really means luxury. It's a word that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, translates it paradise. Um it's a royal park. It, it, it's, it is more than we can imagine. It's it's really heaven on earth. Remember when Jesus told the thief today, you will be with me in paradise. So the the Eden was created as heaven on earth and nothing could supersede that. It was in this place of serene beauty and sublime creation that God the creator deposited mankind in the form of Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden, and he said he had prescription for them. And uh, how many of you know, I'm I'm going to scramble your brains a little bit. How many of you know God knew when he put them in the garden that they were going to fall? And yet he put them in the garden anyway, and they fell. It was also in this garden where they fell, human race fell, and we began our journey down the wrong road. And that wrong road is a a road of separation from the Father. It's in that garden where mankind was separated from God the Father because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And you you heard me last week, and you've heard me many times. We can never get arrogant or cocky or upset with Adam and Eve for being the ones who sinned in the garden because you and I would have done the same. We would have just done it faster. The separation was so significant uh, because of the sin of Adam and Eve that God removed them from the garden, and he blocked the entrance so they could not re-enter. Scripture says that he placed cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, and then he placed a flaming sword to prevent anyone from getting to the Tree of Life. Wasn't going to happen. And that's the state of mankind. And down through the ages and down in, course, in the Old Testament, uh, we see mankind exhibiting uh, the byproduct of that sin down through the ages the scripture speaks and spoke of the coming of the last Adam. when I was starting out as a, as a speaker, a preacher, pastor, teacher or whatever some people call me other names, but I'll just leave those alone. Uh, I, I, I erroneously said a few times and called Jesus the second Adam. But he can't be the second Adam because there're not going to be a third one. He's the last Adam. The last Adam. And so the scripture, uh, you know, I think I did a series one time where Jesus pops up all through the Old Testament. It just is a wealth of appearances and references to Jesus, the last Adam. That he would come one day and restore and reassume what the first Adam had abdicated, resulting in eternal harm to his bloodline. The minute Adam disobeyed God, Scripture says Eve was deceived, but Adam directly disobeyed God. The minute he did that, the bloodline of humanity was tainted. We were forever sinners. We were born sinners, and we needed help. The Scripture says... In reference to Jesus coming one day, Moses said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Hebrews teaches. Hebrews was written to a group of people who were considering returning to Judaism, going backwards basically, returning to the legalism of Judaism And the writer of Hebrews is saying, especially in the first part of that letter, he's saying that Jesus is so much far superior to Moses because Moses was their guy. And Moses himself said, when he comes, you listen to him. You must listen to him. And so we know throughout the Old Testament, we know that there was one coming. There was so many prophecies of Jesus coming one day. And so much misunderstood about when he did come and what that looked like. Well, Jesus comes to earth, born as an infant. We celebrate at Christmas, born uh, in, into a stable, into a manger, and and grows up to be the man of God, the son of God, the Messiah. He's born the Messiah, but he grows up to function as the Messiah and begins his ministry and has his earthly ministry. He, uh, he gathers some disciples whom he would hand the keys to once he left that was a brave move on Jesus part i'm telling you have you ever looked at those guys but but the time had come when he must go to golgotha and do what he came to do scripture says he came to destroy the works of the devil and there was only one way he could do that. He wasn't going to do it by outmiting him, outpowering him. We find him making his way to the second garden, which is obviously the garden of Gethsemane. He's in this garden and he's in anguish and he is in turmoil. We see not a sinful man, but we see the humanity of Jesus in this moment. He, you know, he's not succumbing to some temptation and he's not giving in to sin. He's dealing in reality as a human being. He's in anguish. He's in turmoil and he's facing the gravity of the moment that he's about to face. Of course, we know the story that he tells the disciples, they all stay over here and pray. And he goes and prays. He goes back and of course they're asleep. He said, why can't you stay awake, you know, even one hour? And so he goes back and he prays some more. He comes back and, of course, they're asleep. But this time he just says, forget you. <laughs> and he goes back. The scripture says, uh, maybe Matthew's account, but it doesn't matter. The scripture says that he literally sweat drops of blood. His capillary capillaries on his in his arms, wherever, were bursting due to the stress and the strain and the anguish of what he knew he was facing. And he was doing business with his father. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, You sit over here while I pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, of course, James and John. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, a second time, he went away and prayed and saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done i want us to see that jesus was not taking this lightly he he was not he was not just walking through uh, a numb like a numb robot but he was seeing the reality of what he was facing and he he was in that garden with a sense of dread you say what did he dread well beyond the simple pain and the suffering that he endured. We talked last Sunday about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and uh, Ricky and Sharon invited us to a screening of that when it first, before it even came out, uh, before it was even finished. And you could sit, and we were in a church, probably we were in an auditorium about the size of this one, probably, and you could hear the sniffles as people were watching that. And of course, then we went to the theater to see it, and that's a very vivid picture and maybe not vivid enough, of the suffering that he went through. Certainly he must have dreaded that, but I think there's more to it than that. What did he dread? Ultimately, I think what he dreaded was the ultimate wrath of God and the separation from his Father for the first time ever. For you you realize that upon the cross, he took our wrath. He took what what belonged to us, and he took it upon, the wrath of God was upon him. We don't talk enough about the wrath of God because we we want to make people feel good and comfortable and feel good about themselves and never squirm. Well, anyway, he dealt with the wrath of God and the fact that he was going to be for some period of time separated from his father for the first time ever. Think about it. Hebrews talks about, Hebrews 12 talks about, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised its shame. There's a lot there. You say, what? what is the joy? Because, you know, us uh, self-absorbed Western Christians, we immediately think that we're the joy set before him. And that's part of it. That is a secondary part of it. But I believe the primary joy set before Jesus it caused him to endure the cross and despise the shame was the joy of pleasing his father. And for him to go, and so he's hanging on the cross. We talked about it last week, but he's hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what do we know? We know that in that moment, his father Had forsaken him. It was not a permanent condition. But in those few moments. Jesus experienced something he had never experienced. And that's what he was dreading. In the garden of Gethsemane. And of course upon him. In that moment. Not only came the wrath of God. But came the sin. Of all mankind. All mankind. That he bore in his body the sin of you and me. I, I, uh, I made a mistake last week. I told you they broke Jesus, Jesus bones. And, uh, I don't know what I was thinking. What's wrong with y'all people. Y'all didn't catch that. Okay. Thank you, Ricky. I wish you to call me during my message. You could have called me during the message. I was so wrapped up in those thieves getting their legs broke that I broke Jesus' legs and they never were broke. Why? Because he was already dead. And he gave himself up in that moment and he died. I didn't know till just recently, I guess I live in a bubble. I didn't know till just recently that there is a plethora of Christian churches who do not believe in the resurrection. Who teach against and teach all kind of bizarre ideas. Like the the government, the Jews, not the government, but the Jews stole the body. And so there wasn't really no resurrection. Well, you would think that if you, you were the Jews and they started talking about he's resurrected, he's risen, he's risen, that you would pr- produce a body if you had it. Yeah. Yeah. Never happened. I mean, there's all kind of, now I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's, there's far more than I ever knew. Uh, can I say this in church idiots <laughs> who have bought into untruth? Um, let me recommend the book More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Probably the best book that's ever written on proving scientifically and evidentially. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about that thick. You can read it. Well, you can read it. It doesn't take much time. Let's just say it that way. The third garden we'll move to. I've called the Garden of Victory. There is a garden in Palestine called the Garden Tomb that some believe is the tomb. There's some uh, issues with that. I'm not going to get into that because I don't really care what it's called. But there's a tomb somewhere in that area, and I'm going to call it the tomb of victory. It was in this garden that ultimate victory was gained by mankind when the Son of God walked out of that tomb, trampling in triumph over death. It's in this garden. and If you will turn with me to John chapter 19. This is the last passage I'll have you turn to. Uh, If you get bored with me, you can turn to several more if you want to. Uh, But uh, John 19, 38. It's just a short passage. I'm not going to have you stand. And it reads this way. After these things, after he was dead. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, or Joseph from the village of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier, that's Nick at night, by the way, okay, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came through, They laid Jesus there. The garden of victory. There was a garden there and a tomb. Of course, you remember later on, Mary thinking that Jesus was the gardener, that they're taking care of the garden. Joseph was not only a follower of Jesus Christ, he was a member of the council who had decreed his crucifixion, his execution. Scripture teaches us that he did not agree with their decisions or nor their actions. He was a dissenting member of the council. I don't know how they fleshed all that out, but he did not approve of the crucifixion of Jesus. The scripture says, For he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now that's interesting. How would he know to look for the kingdom of God? You, you know, just a few weeks ago, we did several messages on the kingdom of God because he had heard Jesus constantly talking about it. And Jesus kept saying, I need to share the gospel of the kingdom. I need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. This was over and over. So here's Joseph, a follower of Jesus, secretly, but a part of the council, and he's looking for the kingdom of God. A rich man, by the way. He was a, he was, had his own personal tomb. This was his tomb. He had, I don't think if I guess he'd bought it. It's designated for Joseph of Arimathea to be buried. And he says, can I have the body of Jesus? And he takes and puts him in his own tomb. He and his accomplice, Nicodemus, who by this time obviously had believed the message that he heard in John 3 and believed on Jesus Christ. And was one of his followers as well, and he places him in his own tomb. And scripture, the scripture says, "I always thought the, you know, I always had in my head that the tomb, the rock of the stone was, you know, super duper, extremely heavy. He he rolled it. I don't know if Joseph was strong or smart or what, but he rolled the stone and, clo- and closed the tomb. And as far as they knew, that was it. Well, they waited the sabbath day they did not do anything because it was the sabbath day and the next day mary and several of the women showed up at the tomb to with spices to anoint the body the dead body of jesus and it's interesting as you can read all four gospels cover this and a couple of them uh, have Mary and and, and the ladies, some of the gospels name the ladies Salome and uh, the other Mary. It says whoever that is, but anyway, it says they identified, uh, encountered a, a man who was an angel, and he had rolled back the the stone, and he was sitting on top of it. Uh, Luke or somebody, I forget, says there was two of them. I love the fact that God allowed. Not only the personalities of these four men to come through their writing, but even different perspectives. You say, was, which one's right? The one that saw one or the one that saw two? Yes. Because it's different perspectives. But they're angels. And they all basically said the same thing. He is not here. He's not here for he has risen. What a a message that these ladies encountered. You know, the disciples were sitting over there feeling sorry for themselves somewhere. But these ladies, they showed up. Of course, Mary Magdalene had been forgiven the most. And she was probably the first one there. And it's interesting that they go back, and of course, the, the angels say to these ladies go tell his disciples. Go tell his disciples. To go. They go and tell the disciples. And guess what the disciples say? Nah, that's not true. It's sad to say, but in that day, in a court of law or in any legal proceeding, a woman's testimony was not regarded as truthful. Not that they were all liars. They just didn't regard them as significant enough to consider what they had to say. So their natural re- re- reaction, bunch of male show. Anyway, <laughs> their natural reaction. My wife says, I'm a male chauvinist, but I ain't that bad <laughs> yet. I mean, their natural reaction was, we're not going to believe these ladies. But Peter, you got to love Peter. Peter takes off running. But what's interesting is John takes off running. And John's older than Peter. But anyway, they get to the tomb and they look in and he's not there. Cloth is there. The headdress is folded. Don't you love that about Jesus? Us OCD people love that about Jesus. It was folded neatly and put on the. But he's not there. And they're excited. Because he's not there. He's risen. He's risen. What does that mean to us? What does it mean to us that Jesus walked out of there? What does it mean to us that his body was laying there lifeless? I would love to have seen the process if there was a process. It might have been a process where his body began to move, twitch a little bit. I don't know. Probably not, but I'm, I'm of, I've am I'm watched too many movies, I guess. But as the Holy Spirit brought him back to life, Or was it, pow, he's awake. Sorry about that, Roddy. (laughs) Pow. And he jumped up off of that. I don't know. But life came back into a lifeless body. He was not in a coma. That's another one of those things these people try to teach you. He wasn't really dead. He was just in a coma. They even teach that one of the thieves was part of some group of people. And when they got into the tomb, and Bible doesn't even say that the thieves went in that tomb, but they said when they got in the tomb, he came up with some concoction that caused Jesus to come out of the coma. You know, if I had to waste my time on those kinds of things, I wouldn't even start. But we know that's not what happened. What happened was he was dead. As Jerry Clower used to say, he was graveyard dead. And yet life, everybody say life, life, came back into him. And so we see resurrection power. Scripture says, I'm getting off my notes, so if I go longer, then don't fire me. If you do fire me, give me a good compensation package or something. I don't know. <clears throat> now i distracting myself. The scripture says that the, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Everybody say the same. The same Holy Spirit that found that lifeless body and quickened it and brought it back to life lives in you. Lives in you, lives in me. Same Holy Spirit, not a different one, not a minor, not a junior one, same one. Resurrection power. Paul said, what is the exceeding greatness I want to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working or the energetic working of his mighty dunamis, his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It was not, it was an, it was energy. It was more energy than you and I can fathom. We've been watching this goofy show called Eureka. Now, some of you have seen that. If you hadn't, don't bother unless you like science fiction. But they create all kinds of stuff with the energy, and it's, it's just different. Just, just different. But the working to raise that body was a massive amount of energy. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Living. We don't have faith in a dead man. We have faith in living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We find ourselves with hope. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What does it mean to know the power of his resurrection? What does it mean to experience? What does that mean to you? And what does that mean to me? It means so many different things. It means that I'm justified. It means that I can have a new life, a new life that's not a dead life. I can have a new life in God. Everybody knows the difference between when before we gave ourselves and we were born from above by the Spirit of God and we were miserable and we were we were bound by sin. And we tried several times to get free from that sin. And every time, as uh, God told Cain, sin was crouching at our door. We couldn't get free. But now, because he rose from the dead, you and I can live in newness of life. He gained victory over the devil. Colossians, Paul writes, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Having triumphed over them, through him and when he had divested the rulers and authorities of their power he made this is the Grangers prayer phrase by the way when he had divested the rulers and authorities of their power he made a public show of his conquest leading his conquered through a victory processional exhibiting them as trophies of victory. I see I see a win there that they were his trophies and there was a parade. And all of the heavenly hosts saw this. As I said earlier, Jesus couldn't just outmight him and outpower him. He needed to defeat the devil. And how did he do that? He gave himself as a sacrifice. And then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, we see this verse. He divested them. He made a public show of them. He conquered them through a victory. And and there was a processional. Not only did he have victory over the devil, but in like manner he had victory over our sin. Obviously, not his sin. He didn't, he didn't need victory over sin. But he needed to gain victory over our sin so that we can gain victory over our, our, the sin. If there isn't a resurrection, we do not gain victory over the sin. Because he comes to life in that moment. He left the tomb minus our sin. He went into the tomb. His dead body, if we could see it in the spiritual realm, his dead body goes into the tomb bearing the sin of mankind. Imagine a coat covering him. That is our sin. And he paid the price. He took upon himself as the Lamb of God, the eternal Passover Lamb. He took upon him, our sin upon him, and they lay him in the tomb. And he's dead. And he's still bearing our sins, but in that moment when his body began to move or moved, all of a sudden, at that moment when life re-entered his body, all the sin that he had taken from mankind dropped from him like scales. All the sin that he had bore for us no longer could hold him because he had gained victory over the sin your sin and my sin he had already the, the the debt had already been paid the song says the old account was settled long ago the old account was settled for you and for me and when he walked out of that tomb when he well however he got out of that tomb our debts were paid. And sin had no grip over him or us. It was gone. It was settled. When you, we dealt with debt last week. When you owe someone some money and you pay them that money, that debt is gone. It doesn't exist. You can't find it anywhere. It is missing. When Jesus paid our account long ago, it was gone. The debt we owed was gone. It is gone. It's still gone. It's never going to come back. Excuse me for preaching. I, got, I know I got a license. But it's also that moment when the father vindicates him. Because here we have the son of God, son of man who is before all the heavenly host, is bearing the wrath of God, who is bearing the sins of humanity. It's an ugly sight. It's not pretty. But the Father says, I'm going to vindicate him. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, that he was manifested in the flesh. And that resulted in him being crucified because he was in the flesh. He was human. He tells us that he was vindicated by the resurrection The Father is saying to the world. He's saying to you and to me and all the heavenly hosts that would be looking upon this. He's saying to them, this is my beloved son and I have vindicated him. He no longer bears any sin. He no longer bears any reproach. He no longer bears any shame because all of those were part of the cross. I have vindicated him. It says that he was seen by angels. He was displayed in victory over in front of all the heavenly hosts. It says that he was proclaimed and is proclaimed and that many believed upon him. And then he was taken up. People are still proclaiming him and people are still believing in him. But he was taken up to heaven so that he, the Bible says, ever lives to make intercession for you and me. A living God, a living Savior. A living intercessor. It goes on to say that he made us alive together with him. So if he's dead, he can't make us alive together with him. But he's alive. He's just as, he's more alive today. Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. There is that moment. Again, as I said earlier, when we're born from above by the spirit of God, there is that moment when that same energy that raised Jesus from the dead, that same energy quickens our spirit and it comes to life. And we're a living soul, forgiven of our sins, raised, you can find that in Romans 6, raised in newness of life and alive together with him. And here's an added bonus. I don't know about added, but here's a bonus. Remember the cherubim? Remember the flaming sword that was at the front of the Garden of Eden to keep mankind out so that they could not access the Tree of Life. Now people have tried to find the actual physical Garden of Eden. I don't know of anybody who's been all that successful. If they have, please tell me. But in the spiritual realm, when Jesus died and rose again, that Opening, that entrance, that access to the tree of life was removed. I'm not the, the blocking was removed. The cherubim, the spiritual cherubim, and the spiritual flaming sword that was sitting there, it's gone. It's gone because you and I access the tree of life every day. We take part in the tree of life every day. Life is found in relationship with God himself. Nothing blocks us from getting to the tree of life anymore. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And he gained victory over sin. The separation that occurred in the Garden of Eden was removed in the third garden. And Easter is every day we live in his resurrection power. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Bill Gaither. Amen. Don, I didn't tell you all, let's bring the worship team back up. I'm going to read one last passage, and I just want to give you opportunity to respond. Uh, you maybe have listened to this today, and you have realized afresh that you've just been kind of taken for granted that Jesus rose from the dead, that it was some doctrinal thing that was important, but there was real no, no real application to your life. You you may you may have gotten away from a close, sincere commitment to God. I don't know. You may be here today and you've never been born from above by the Spirit. You may be at home and you've never been born from above by the Spirit of God. Whatever whatever you need and whatever the Holy Spirit has said to you, I'm going to give you an opportunity as they sing us a song. But I'm going to read these verses. I read them last Sunday. And I want to close out my part of this by reading them again uh, there they are uh Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. How you like that? They didn't even know they were fulfilling the scriptures, but they did. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. By the way, do you wonder if Joseph of Arimathea actually wound up using that tomb because it was empty? There was there was an availability. Everybody say, but God. But God raised him from the dead. Let's all say that together. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. But God raised him from the dead. And all that that means to us. So let's just take this moment and join the worship team and worship whatever song. What? What? Well, I guess we. Oh, that? He's got that back. And, and just respond. If you need to come to the altar, then you do so. If you need to where you are to do business with God, you do so. If you need someone to pray with you, find somebody. Whatever it is. If nothing else. Renew in your heart. Renew in your heart to God, your Father, and to Jesus the Son because of the work that was done not only on the cross, but in the raising of a dead body and walking out of a tomb. Amen. Come on, worship team. Lead us. You can stand while we
1: sing. I cast my mind to Calvary Where Jesus fled And died for me I see His wounds His hands, His feet and The Savior on that cursed tree His body bound and drenched in tears They laid him down in Joseph's tomb The entrance sealed and on a stone Messiah still Praise the of dawn the sun of heaven rose again oh tramp Gaze Transfixed On Jesus